All right, we're on. Welcome back to Surviving Loving an Addict podcast. I am Karsten Millward. And David Millward. And tonight, we're going to talk about what? When is somebody ready for treatment? When are you going to put the money down to get help for somebody? Okay. Right? This is... I'm glad we're coming back to this. We alluded to this in our very lengthy episode one that we called Addiction Straight Talk. And we went all over the place in that episode. So we're going to... Tr- trying to come back to some of the things that we talked about. Hone in uh, on a little bit of the, a few of the items that we that tried to discuss. Close some of the many loops that we left. So I have heard you talk about the, uh, this question and let's go into it. One, one is ready. For, one is someone ready for treatment, but two, what is your success rate? Right. Okay. So as you're looking for treatment out there and, and one of the things that people used to ask, um, well, they ask all the time, whether I was in a a residential treatment program, a, a, um, you know, private track, whatever it was, it was like what parents want to know or family members want to know, well, what's your success rate? And, uh, I have heard so many different Treatment centers and things have so many different, you know, we've got a 90% sex success rate, 80%, whatever. Here's the real problem. We don't have a way to quantify success. So, mm-hmm. you know, does success mean that they quit using and have never returned to it? I mean, you know, they one quit, of the... Yeah, or they quit using for a year right, or well, three one months. Right, one of the things is, well, here, maybe they make it to a year, that's a never success again. rate. Yeah. Right. And so what is success? What constitutes success? And and my best my best answer for that is is that when somebody is ready to quit using, seriously, ready to make a change in their life and willing to go through it, they have about a hundred percent success rate. Mm-hmm. Right? When you want it and and you're willing to do what it takes, then that's what it is. If you're not ready to quit using, you're guaranteed you're not going to have the success. And and here's the problem is, as a family, when do you know when to put somebody in treatment or not? Right. Treatment is extremely expensive, depending yeah. on how you do it. And there are so many ways to go about it. And, man, I see it advertised everywhere. Everybody's, in fact, man, I see them. Pitching, if you have such and such insurance, we want you come to our center. Right, right. Oh my gosh, man! Addiction treatment has become such a a huge business, such a money maker out there. Right, but I guess one of my pet peeves for you know, if you're looking for a place to take somebody, one of my first warning signs is is that when you hear somebody say, "We can fix you." As soon as I hear that, it's like turn around and run out because the truth and reality of it is nobody can fix you. And if you've run into a facility that thinks that they can. Or you have a counselor that believes that your success is because they've done such a great job. Right. Right. Then then you have a problem and that is not a place to be because truth of treatment is and truth of the success is, is that the individual will have success because that's what they want. When we want it enough 
we will find ways of making it happen. So that well, being said. Okay, so don't forget your thought, but I want to clarify something. If somebody wants it mm-hmm. enough, you talked about having a 100%, an about 100%, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, but if they want it enough, do they, can't they just stop? Do they actually need treatment? Well, yeah. So now here's the, the rub on that is that there are very few people, let's say opioid addiction, that are truly opioid addicts taking heroin or any of those. There are very, very few people that are going to be able to ever quit on their own. Mm-hmm. It's just too much of a mountain to to overcome. So you're going to maybe need medical help and then you're going to need some counseling. And for most people that are going to quit using drugs and alcohol, their counseling is going to be a partner in helping them to become the best they can. So my job as a counselor is to point out, you know, pitfalls and help people see the blind spots. And in reality, they fix themselves. Mm-hmm. Right, I can I can show them different skills or different things to use, but they will pick them up and they'll use them and they will fix themselves because that's what they want. And so, um, when do you pay money to put somebody in treatment? Yeah. Well, there's a there's stages of change. So think about this. In the the five stages of change, the first stage is called pre-contemplative. Pre-contemplation means that as an addict, I don't have a problem. You have a problem. You're on my back. You're handing me. You're nagging after me. And I don't really see that I have a problem here. Mm -hmm. So the the addict isn't even thinking about change. Now, you're scared to death and, and you're hounding them. But that doesn't mean they're ready to change. And just because you're ready to have them change doesn't mean it's time to spend money. Mm-hmm. All right? That's probably when you see this the most. When somebody finds out about an addiction. That- oh, as soon as, somebody, as soon as somebody comes to believe that their loved one is an addict or they have a problem or they've been using drugs or they've been drinking. Or they're caught. Or they're caught. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And and a lot of times when somebody's caught, you know, now there's legal consequences to pay. That doesn't mean that I'm ready to quit using. I don't have a problem. You know, it's just that the uh, stupid officers, you know, hassled me and and they, you know, every excuse in the world on why they got caught using or they were whatever. And it's not their fault. That's pre-contemplative. I don't have a problem. Everybody else has a problem. Now, as a parent. You're going to be scared to death and you're going to jump and, oh, man, I'm going to bail them out. We're going to take care of them. We don't want them to suffer in jail and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and I imagine the the mind goes straight to treatment. Let's help them. Stop them from doing what they're doing. But the underlying thought is, let's fix this. Yeah, let's fix it and this is how you're going to do it. Right. Or let's fix this. We don't want this happening anymore. I'll pay anything to help. Well, guess what, Mom and Dad? You have about a 0% chance of that sticking. That means you have a 100% chance of throwing away a lot of money. And, and I don't, I, you know, there's the heartache and the personal effect and all that, you know, the, the, how it, but the reality of it is, I'm just telling you, 
you're, you're throwing your money away because I don't have a problem. You do, right? That's the thought that right. is going through. All right, so let's go to the okay, next. So, the next. So stage. Let, let's say that. Okay. Let's say that you uh, you're. Let's say your son gets picked up and puts in put in jail, and and let's say that that you're smart enough not to bail him out. Okay. You haven't gone to that place of fear and anxiety and, oh, my gosh, but all these bad things are going to happen in jail, so I'm going to go bail him out of jail, right? Spare them the consequences. Spare them the consequences. Yeah. Let's see, you're smart enough to avoid that trap. And as they sit there and start having to weigh out the consequences, let's say they go, hey, wait a minute. Maybe I have a problem. Well, they just moved from the pre-contemplative now to the contemplative now they're actually thinking about it and they're thinking i might have a problem here this this might be something i need to look at but as soon as i get out of this place i'll be okay i think that i think that i see what's happening here so the addict is not really concerned with the addiction they're in the hot seat because they're sitting in jail they're thinking oh here's this problem right right and this this got me in jail. And so typically in that pre-contemplative, there's also the or the contemplative, there's also the idea that says, well, now if I quit today and I get through all my legal issues, or I quit today and get them on my back, and it might help me a little bit, it's okay because down the road a ways, I could probably use once or twice and it'll be okay. Right? So that's contemplation. I'm thinking about it and and how would this work for me and, and everything and and what what am I gonna do? Mm -hmm. Okay. Don't spend your money. Okay. Don't spend your money. Cause I'm not ready yet. Can you give the same guarantee hundred percent chance of throwing your money away. <laughs> Just for the sake of argument, let's say ninety-five percent oh, chance of, of you're gonna throw your money away. Okay. Right? And and I come at this from the place that I don't have a ton of resources personally. Mm -hmm. Right? So I don't have a ton of money to throw at things. And so I'm always thinking, wow, gosh, man, what am I going to do here? If I if I spend up everything I have right now and, and it's just throwing money in the wind, what am I going to do if things ever change? So let's say we move along the spectrum here one more step. And we go from that contemplation to preparation. So pre-contemplative or pre-contemplation. Pre mm -hmm. Right. Contemplation. And now preparation. Preparation. Right. Continue. Preparation says, you know what? I have got a problem. I don't know how I'm going to go about this necessarily, but I do not like what's going on. I don't like how my life is turning, and, and I don't like all these things. And it's probably because I'm using, and I think I want to do something about this. I'm just not sure what to do do necessarily now now I'm preparing myself to make a change when they get to that preparation place now is the time to explore what you might be able to do or what they can do and better yet have them explore what they're what they can do okay so this is the point where the tone is changing um mm -hmm. So the contemplation, that was somebody in jail and they're in the hot seat and 
a consequence has them thinking, oh, this is not that cool. But the preparation period, there's this, uh, maybe they're out of jail. But they're, out of jail. And they're still having the, uh, this is not what I was wanting. And this is a point where they start getting honest with themselves, mm-hmm. right? Where they start realizing that, that what they're going through, how they're living, is not what they really want. Now, they may not know how to fix it yet, but this is the point when, you know, as, as a loved one, as family members, this is a point when you can explore options. Now, the best thing is, is to let them explore the options. And let's say that they come up with an idea or a plan. They say, look, mom, dad, look, loved one, um, there is a treatment program I think I'd like to investigate, and it's going to cost X number of dollars. I don't have that much money. Can you help me out on this? At that point, you can start looking at it and go, well, you know, that might not be a bad idea. And you can you can start um, investigating costs, what's involved, commitments, what the individual would have to do. Because sometimes, even though I want to change, when I discover that there's a huge commitment in it, I might uh, get cold feet and back out. I'm still preparing. I'm not ready yet. Don't plunk down the money because I'm just in a preparation place. Okay. Okay. What's the next stage? Next stage is active change. Now I am engaged in making a change in my life. A lot of times this happens in treatment. You know, we've contemplated, we've prepared, we've maybe started in treatment and I am actively engaged in my own recovery. I am doing the things I'm supposed to. I'm, I am not picking up and using. You know, at that point, the investment that they're making or that you're contributing to or what, whatever is going to bear good fruit. At that place, it is okay to help somebody who can't do it for themselves. It's okay to be helpful in maybe it's finances, maybe it's helping take care of the family, whatever, when they should and could do it for themselves, but they can't. At that place, when they're actively involved, you can help them. And then, and then the fifth stage after that is maintenance, that they're going to be doing something regularly to maintain their recovery. Those mm-hmm. are the, the stages of change. Okay. Do not throw money into it until they are active. <laughs> They're getting so, actively engaged, yeah. right? So these, yeah. So your recommendation is wait till somebody is actively engaged, mm-hmm. showing signs of the, the, making changes their own. So here's the, here's the best sign too. Yeah. Okay, you, here's here's the number like one sign. Legitimate. Yeah. All the examples right? would be great. I will do anything. I have to, to make this happen. Somebody wants to go to treatment, okay? When I was working in a residential program, we'd get calls from individuals that would say, oh, I've just got to make a change. I want to make a change. I'm going to do something to make a change. Great. Here's what I need you to do. 
before you come into this beautiful facility that we have here, I want you to go down to the VOA, Volunteers of America, a wonderful organization that helps people detox off of drugs and alcohol. It's a, um, it's a peer-based program. You go down and they just take care of you. It is not a lush, beautiful place. It's a little difficult, or it can be. I want you to go down to Volunteers of America and detox three days down there so that you can get the drugs out of your system before you come here. And they say, well, I'm not going to do that. As soon as I hear those words, I'm not going to do that, this person isn't ready to spend money on. Mm -hmm. I've heard so many people say, I will do anything. I want to go to treatment. And they'll say, okay, great. Here is ABC treatment program that's uh, it's a nice, beautiful facility. I don't want to go there. I want to go up to the mountaintops. I want to have the free helicopter rides and men on my pillow. That's the kind of treatment I'm talking about. As soon as you hear that, it's like don't spend the money because they're not willing to do whatever it takes. I've told people for years and years that a person can get recovery in a Cracker Jacks box if that's what they want. They can. You don't have to have the most lush surroundings. You don't have to have the best counselors in the world. You can get recovery, get into recovery in in some of these places because it's what you want, right? So, uh, go ahead. I'm going to interrupt. There is something that I want to clarify because the first thing that you said, the number one sign was them saying, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. But it's not saying it. It's, it's seeing the willingness right. to do anything it takes. Thank you for clarifying. Right? Because there is a difference. Yep. When you hear somebody say, I'll do anything it takes, that doesn't mean they're willing to do it. And you need to wait. Yeah. Yeah. You need to wait. Now, something that used to drive me crazy in um, when I was in a residential program, and we would do utilization review or we talked to the insurance companies, and we would want to uh, try to get coverage for them to come into our program. Well, the insurance companies at that point would want us to do, you know, they'd give us a few days or they'd want a lower degree of tre a lower level of treatment than we were asking for. But, you know, they were very hesitant to spend money and it used to just frustrate me because, you know, we were charging a lot of money for these people to be there for 28 days and don't they know better? And, and it used to frustrate me until I learned a really important thing and, and kind of a principle I go by is to try to... When you're getting into treatment, you try to do the best for the least. So try to get the, the best amount of treatment you can for, for not a whole lot of money. Try to find something that you're not putting a fortune into up front. So, for example, if you can go to an outpatient program and be in treatment and get everything you need from it, spending $3,000... Instead of, Instead of going to a luxury treatment center and spending $50,000. Yeah, or $3,000 a day. Right. Do the $3,000 outpatient program. If they don't succeed at that, if they can't manage at that point, then you up the next to level of treatment and go, okay, well, let's put you in this higher level of treatment. So you might spend a little more money, but you never start off spending a ton of money on the top. And then have them decide that maybe they weren't ready to do anything it takes. Would you ever think that 
starting with an expensive residential or in residence or inpatient treatment center was the best place to start? Absolutely not. For absolutely anyone, for any well, I mean, never okay. say never. Yeah, let's do the never, never say, say always. Never and, but and, and generally speaking, no. What is what is the benefit of the inpatient treatment program? You know, um, because the, the price difference is astounding. Yeah. So let me back up. Um, with opioid addiction, since that's like the number one thing we're dealing with right now, there was a time when you took your loved one to a residential treatment center and put him in there basically to keep them away from using. It was like, you know, 24-hour supervision to keep them from picking up and using drugs. A lot of families put their loved ones in residential programs because then they've got somebody else babysitting and taking care of this individual and they could forget about it for a while and have a little rest from them. But but the deal was is that those residential treatment programs um, historically were a wonderful place to babysit and keep them away from using. Or that was the idea. Reality is you can't you can't keep drugs out of jails. You can't keep drugs out of treatment centers, no matter how tight you lock them down. Right. But that was the principle. Today, with medications that we have like Vivitrol, which is an opiate blocker, uh, buprenorphine, which helps somebody be able to transition off of heavy opiates, you know, and you get off of them. With those kind of medications, you can do more in an outpatient environment than you could in a residential. Now, the, you go to residential and you have uh, classes and you have groups and you have individual counseling, which are all wonderful. Problem is, is that in a residential program, if you're in there for 90 days or 60 or 28 days, whatever the length of time you're there, you're in a bubble. You are taken out of the world. You're, you know, you don't have to deal with the job. You don't have to deal with uh, family or relationships. A whole bunch of these things. You don't worry about cooking your meals. Everything is taken care of for you. And so as you sit in that program and you get all this wonderful programming, information, and counseling, that's all great. But what happens is as soon as you walk out the doors of the treatment center, life hits you in the face. And what most people do, most of us, is we revert back to our last best coping mechanism. So I may have learned all kinds of things in the residential program, but I never really had to put it to use in real life circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so I walk out the door, boom, I get hit in the face with a job responsibility and bills, bills family, revert right back to yep. what I was doing before. And so that whole amount of money that I just spent, while, you know, it may have learned a lot, I'm back in the door. I've got to go back because I've just relapsed or I've just picked up and started using again. Sure. And to contrast that with the so contrast that with the outpatient. Outpatient, where, I mean, would you describe an outpatient program? How often is somebody well, so break, seeing a doctor or yeah, a counselor? So we, so we break down outpatient programs into um, intensive outpatient. An intensive outpatient program is going to, believe, I believe, have 12 hours of programming a week. So you, typically you're going to go in two and a half, three hours every evening uh, and um, on the weekends. So you're going to have... You know, quite a bit of time together. That's an intensive outpatient program. Lots of group therapy. Wow. Okay, so uh, that, that's actually more than I thought. I didn't realize. 
Yeah, so that's that's what we call intensive outpatient program. And there's a lot of programming in that, and then you go home at night, and then you come back the next day, and you go home at night and come back the next day. That's, that's good um, on a lot of fronts, and it, I mean, you see it being very successful a lot of places. Uh, the next level lower down is uh, outpatient. Now, outpatient can be, well, a couple of hours of programming a week. You know, it's it's not as well defined. But you did bring up that there are, and you also brought up that uh, things like, uh, name the medication again. Buprenorphine. Buprenorphine. How do I forget? box on the street. Or, yeah. yeah. So there are ways, even if you're not going in to treatment all the time, or it's not intensive, somebody's not able to just relapse or there's or no pick up and use yeah yeah pick up and use it or there's no reason or benefit right to doing that right and and then if, vivitrol on top of that is a wonderful medication in that it blocks the opiate receptors and so if you have it on board you could use all the opiates you could use to shoot up and it's not going to affect you because your receptors are blocked so mm-hmm. so the same thing that we were getting out of putting somebody in a lockdown facility which to keep them away from using now we can accomplish with medications instead of being locked up. So the cost factor goes way, way down. And, and then the added benefit of somebody learning to cope in their real life, in the real world. Because what I'm doing is I have to go to a job every day, right? The beauty of the buprenorphine is, is that the buprenorphine can give somebody a quality of life. They don't have to use all day long. Um, they're not high. And, and, you know, they get to live at home and work and have bills and responsibilities and, and all the things that we, you know, that give us stress that may cause a person to pick up and use. So we can accomplish that for a whole lot less than putting you in a residential facility or a lockdown facility. Okay, so that's some excellent information from an actual expert. I fear that a lot of people have a really hard time finding those pieces of information as they're looking for treatment for their loved one. Yeah. That's probably too hard to get because you have a lot of facilities out there that are just fighting for your money and not trying to just help you. I mean, if a facility will take somebody regardless of the stage that they're at, the five stages that we've talked about, that's a terrible red flag. But well, and let me clarify. There was a point when there was criteria, ASAM criteria that everybody followed, and it talked about what stage a person was at, or what kind of treatment they needed. But you know what? Um, my personal experience is, is that's kind of been blown out the window, and now it's just it's a money grab. And I hate to say it because I know there's a lot of people that are going to be upset with that, but but it, truthfully, has just become a money grab. You know, people can be upset, but. If you're involved in an ethical nightmare, it's an ethical nightmare, and we're happy to point it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let me tell you a great ethical nightmare, just since we're talking about it. Please. Um, so one of the things that we used to do in drug and alcohol, or in residential programs were, is that we would do random urine drug tests. 
And the reason you do a random urinalysis or drug test in a treatment center isn't to have a stick to beat somebody with. We do that so that we can make sure that the residential program was safe, that if somebody was bringing drugs in, we were protecting the rest of the clients who were trying not to use drugs from those drugs that were coming in. And so we do urine uh, tests. And, and if somebody in a residential program were using, then they would leave the program until they were clean so that we could protect the rest of the clients. That makes sense. Yeah. And so that was, that's been like the, the emphasis on using urine drug tests is to be able to create a safe environment. Well, uh, my goodness, uh, seven, eight, nine years ago, they discovered, or the, my, this industry discovered a loophole in billing insurances for drug for uh, urinalysis for uh, urine drug screens. I mean, it's a medical right thing. So I work in a right. I work with a doctor. We have a small private practice, and uh, when he bills for a urine test for a drug test, uh, the practice where you're at now. Yeah, practice uh-huh. where I'm at right now. Uh, when he bills uh, somebody for a urine drug screen, which we do on a random basis just to make sure that we know where they're at and it helps them to be honest and, and it helps us to you know evaluate how they're doing. Um, insurance will pay, because he's a doctor and a medical provider, they will pay about $20 for one of those tests through the insurance. Mm-hmm. Well, some years ago, the uh, lab cor- labs and things that provide these tests found a loophole so that when they were billing the insurance for a urine drug test, the insurance was compensating drug and alcohol treatment centers as much as $1,500 for each test. Right. For the $20 test we do in the doctor's office at a drug and alcohol treatment center, they were paying upwards of $1,500 a piece each test. Are so, these, so we're I talking. feel like I've seen these tests yeah. like at Walmart. Oh, yeah. Same test at Walmart. For you know, a few dollars. We call them nine panel tests, means it has nine different substances that it's looking for, right? A few dollars. But when you go through your insurance, you know, if you go to the doctor's office and, and the doctor's, like I said, he gets compensated. but that very same test through a drug and alcohol treatment center, they were billing and receiving from insurance companies up to $1,500 a test. I watched one particular organization that um, went from, and I say this because I happened to be working there at the time for a short period of time, but we went from doing random drug tests to testing every client every night if they had insurance. Now, if they didn't have insurance, we were still doing a random test. But if they were under insurance, they were getting drug tested every night. It was an outpatient program, so we were making sure that they were staying clean every night. Oh, my. I'm telling you, when, when you charge and you receive from an insurance company, one patient I knew particularly that came in with her bill from the insurance company or, you know, from the statement from the insurance company that had spent $60,000 on drug and alcohol tests. What? The program that she was in charged $30,000. 
But the drug and alcohol tests, they made $60,000 more on. Now, it was legal, and everybody was hopping on the bandwagon, right? And we had, we had um, labs coming in, you know, from all over the country wanting us to do this, to jump on board with it. My, you know, I told them, like, the doctor I worked with, I said, look, this may be legal, but it sure is not ethical. And it cannot be moral. And I told him, I said, look, we don't want to be the people that are selling $500 hammers to the Air Force. And then when somebody says, what the heck is going on? And we say, well, it was legal. And they say, yeah, but it wasn't right. You know, we don't want to be that person. This is not who we are. This is not what real drug and alcohol treatment is about. So that was, you know, one of those ethical things that... Uh, but fortunately, you know, we never did partake in, we didn't get involved in, and, and I watched a lot of people uh, have a lot of issues and problems because of it. But, you know, readiness to, for treatment, how much and when am I going to pay? Got to be really careful about it. You can't let your hopes and your desires and your fears manage your checking account. I got to call it there. Thank you for joining us on the Surviving Loving an Addict podcast. I'm Carson Millward. Dave Millward. See you again. Thanks for listening to the Surviving Loving an Addict podcast. The views expressed in this podcast must not be interpreted as personalized medical advice. Those experiencing addiction and those with loved ones experiencing addiction are urged to seek medical attention and professional counseling from providers experienced in addiction therapies and treatment. 